right, if you would please turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 27. We'll do the whole chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Thank you for hanging in there with me through Deuteronomy. And oh, there's such good things for us yet to come in Deuteronomy still. Deuteronomy chapter 27, starting in verse 1. Take this off, it's warm up here. So let's read. Read this. As we read this, read this as a covenant ceremony that Moses is calling for, just as your heads up. Here it says, Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today, and on the day that you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you've crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. And that day Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image in abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. And cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. And cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. And cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he's uncovered his father's nakedness. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. And all the people shall say, Amen. And cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. And all the people shall say, Amen. And cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. To which we say, Amen. Let's go, Lord, in prayer, shall we?
Heavenly Father, as we gaze upon this beautiful covenant renewal ceremony, help us to understand. Help me as a preacher, O Lord, to unworthy as I am, O Lord. Help me to make it clear, to be accurate. And Lord, then may your word just shine for what it is, your word, and may you attend it by your Spirit's power uh, to make a difference in our life. Impress us afresh with the truth of your word and impress that truth on our hearts. May we love your gospel more. May we be drawn deeper into your gospel. May we live out your gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. We trust in accordance with your will. Amen. Well, I'm sure you've had the experience that you saw something that was made by a master craftsman, and the closer you got to that masterpiece, the more impressed you got. So maybe you saw Michelangelo's David online. You thought, well, that's kind of cool. And you saw it from afar because maybe you went to Italy, and a bunch of you did this last summer. Uh, but then when you got close and you saw the level of detail, you're just blown away. Or maybe it's like this with music for you. So you listen to a song, and you're like, this is a good song. Uh, but the more you learn about music, and the more you examine the individual elements of the song, the more impressed you get. The closer you get, the more impressed you get. And I would say I had an experience like this as I studied our passage this week. I, I always appreciate all of Scripture as I read it on a casual read-through, but the more I got an up-close look at all the pieces of this ceremony, the more it dawned on me. Uh, this covenant renewal ceremony is just incredible. So let me walk you through chapter 27 in this ceremony from a couple different vantage points. First, we'll just look at it from a 100-foot view, see the big picture of what it's describing. Then we'll look at it from a 10-foot view. You start to say, okay, I want you to appreciate its various elements individually as they come into focus. And then we'll look at it from a one-foot right in front of your face view so we can see how this applies to us specifically today it applies to you. That's the one-foot view. So we'll do it in that order. So first, let's just look, uh, we'll say the, the forest, not the trees. We'll look at the big hundred-foot view first. So for this first point, I, I know we just read this chapter. I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I still want to walk through this ceremony with you, help you visualize this ceremony, because I want to make sure on the same page, and I know on my first read-through, I don't usually get everything. So let me just describe this ceremony to you. It's a short part of the sermon, but Chapter 27, God's telling his people, when you enter the land, after you enter the land, after I've given the land to you, he wants them to perform a covenant renewal ceremony. Now, if you compare it to other ancient Near Eastern treaties, you see it's actually a covenant ratification ceremony, which means it's the ceremony that a Lord would hold in order to give the land to a people. It's like a land grant. Uh, it's actually something the people would hold in order to receive the gift that was promised. So this is covenant ratification ceremony, and it has a couple pieces to it. You've read them. First, they're supposed to travel to Shechem. It's an ancient city. It's just north of Jerusalem between two mountains, between Ebal and Gerizim. Second, they're supposed to set up on top of Mount Ebal, the mountain of the curse, large standing stones for the purpose of recording the law making them clearly visible to the people. Third, also on Mount Ebal, they set up an altar of uncut stones. Uh, then they'd offer up a burnt offering and a peace offering on top of that altar. More on those in a little bit. And during the peace offering, the people would have a big meal and they'd rejoice with God and they'd offer multiple peace offerings. Fourth, the people would take up positions 
uh, when they actually did this ceremony in Joshua 8, because they actually did this, uh, they had the Ark of the Covenant and the Levitical priests standing in the middle near Shechem, down in the valley, if you're picturing it, then half the people, which would have been hundreds of thousands of people, stood on top of Mount Gerizim to the one side, or at least a little on its slopes, and the other half would stand on Mount Ebal on the other side, hundreds of thousands of people. And then the Levitical priests, as we find out in Joshua 8, they would read the entire law to the people, uh, probably all of Deuteronomy or possibly all of the Torah that they had. And then six, there would be this call and response. We do call and response sometimes as we confess our sins, but this call and response where the Levitical priests called out 12 representative things that people could be cursed for, and then the people each time would call out amen in response to each one. So again, this is all meant it's a covenant renewal ceremony, or if you're getting more specific, it's a covenant ratification ceremony, all done so that people could remember the covenant, so that people could recommit themselves to the covenant, and so that people could acknowledge that God has given us the land just as he promised. It's a covenant ratification ceremony. So in this way, the ceremony would be a really big help to their memories. People had just been wandering in the desert for 40 years, a huge help to their memories, actually written in stone. It would also be a help to their affections, to their feelings, as they gather aloud. Imagine hundreds of thousands of people standing on mountains in a valley, the whole valley filled with, amen, amen, amen. And that's everything we just read from a hundred foot view. I hope that makes a little clearer what was happening in this ceremony. That's our first point. Second point, and they just get better and better. Uh, second point is our 10 foot view. So we're zooming in on this ceremony, and I want to help you appreciate the deeper meaning behind all the pieces. Because every piece is just, like, saturated with meaning. So first, let's just talk about the setting. Let's just talk about where it's happening. So God told the people, okay, gather at the ancient city of Shechem. And that's mega significant because Shechem is the place where God promised the land to Abram. Genesis 12, 6, back at the beginning, says Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So you, you understand this picture. This is the template that God set up. Shechem is the place where God promised to give Abram the land, said build an altar, and Shechem is the place where God says, now the land is now signed, sealed, and delivered. Build an altar. So the place that this happens is mega significant. It underlines the fact God always keeps his promises. That's first. That's just the setting. Let's talk about the standing stones that they built on Mount Ebal. Uh, comparable archaeological finds from the same era suggest that these were large stones, that there are probably many stones. Some of the stones we found from this time, because other cultures did this, were as large as 10 feet tall. Don't think too little tiny stones. Think large standing stones. Stones were covered with plaster so that people could see the writing from a distance. The big question is, okay, what's written on these stones? Some people think, is this just a record of the covenant like Jacob and Laban? Uh, others think, is, is this just the curses? Is this just the Ten Commandments? The text says all the words of the law. I'm inclined to think they wrote a large chunk of Deuteronomy. That's what I'm inclined to think. That's what I think most are inclined to think, that they're, they're actually recording the, the Big Ten 
and all the case laws so that people know how to apply them. We don't know for sure. It doesn't say exactly. It says all the law, though, and so that's our best shot at it. Whatever the case, this law was written on the stones as a reminder of God's law. Here it is, written large. It's also written as a witness against the people if they should ever break it. Sort of a way of saying, you knew what you were signing up for. Here it is, carved in stone. So those are the standing stones. Third, let's look at the altar for a second. They're told to build an altar of uncut stones. Now, we're not 100% sure why they're uncut. If you're a Hebrew student, they're Evan Shalom. They're stones shalom. Isn't that an interesting word? The stones almost of peace. Uh, why were they uncut? Was it to set apart their altar from Canaanite altars? This would have looked like a very different altar than the Canaanites had. Uh, was it just symbolic? Was it symbolic that they're made of, of whole stones, like God made, not like man is chipped away with his violence? We don't know. Those are my two best shots at why they're uncut. What we do know is that this altar is built on Mount Ebal. It's built on the mountain of curse. And we're sure this was intentional, at least, because the people who need an altar are the people who stand on the mountain of the curse. So by the building of this altar, God is giving his people hope, his people that stand on the mountain of curse. He's giving them a hope of atonement. You've blown it. Here's the altar. God will provide the land. More on that in a little bit, of course. And I'll actually just mention in passing here, this altar is one of the things we looked at in our Sunday school class. Uh, I'm pretty comfortable saying that it's very likely that we've either found the altar itself or found at least the site where it was built. That gives me the shivers. Anyway, that's from me, not the Lord. Okay, so that's the altar. Third. Fourth, let's look at the offerings for a second. You've got the burnt offering. So they, they going along with this idea of atonement, the people are supposed to offer a whole burnt offering. Now, the burnt offering, if you're keeping track, that's the offering that's meant to turn away God's anger. It's a propitiatory sacrifice. That's the fancy word for turning away anger. So when the people offered up the animal, they laid their hands on it, they imputed all of their sins onto it, and then the entire thing is burned up with fire. We'll talk more about that a little later too, but this is the offering that the people gave so they could escape a curse. That's why it's on the mountain of curse. So they're to offer a whole burnt offering. Then, after a propitiatory offering, after a sacrifice to turn away God's wrath, they're told, okay, now offer peace offerings. So this is Israel's most celebratory offering. Uh, it's given when you're repaying a vow because God did something wonderful for me. It's given as an expression of thanksgiving. It's given just because... Most basically, if you're just to sum it up, a peace offering is something that the people gave to celebrate how good it is to be at peace with God. Doesn't that sound like a good offering? This is the only offering that the people were allowed to eat with God. They sat down at the table with God to eat. So our text says this exact thing. It says, you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. I want you to notice the order. It's a pretty important order. After the curse is propitiated, the people are called to eat in peace with their God. That should be familiar to you. All right, now let's talk about last, let's talk about the call and response part. That's what I'm calling it. Uh, I think the positioning of the people is really important. You get this, you get the picture. You've got God's ark in the center, 
where he belongs because the ark symbolizes God's presence. It's a symbol of God's throne. He's the covenant Lord, so he's at the center. Then you've got the Levitical priests also in the center. They're God's representatives. They're speaking for God, mediators. They read out all of his law. They read out all of his curses because God's word is central. Then half the tribes on Mount Gerizim, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, Benjamin, half the tribes on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. We're not 100% sure why the tribes are divided this way. It could be geographical, but it is conspicuous that the sons of Jacob's wives stand on Mount Gerizim, the, the sons of the free woman, as Galatians says, stand on Mount Gerizim, and the sons of his maidservants, the sons of the bondwoman, stand on Mount Ebal, along with Reuben, who committed horrible sins, and Zebulun. So one more thing about this positioning. You've got the people on both sides, the everything representing God in the middle, and then you should note that there's a huge gulf fixed between the Mount of Blessing and the Mount of Cursing. Because that's how it is in God's judgment. That huge gulf that's fixed that we read about in Luke. The rich man and Lazarus. So, there's the positioning of everybody as they take up their places in this liturgical dance. And then finally, let's talk about the call and response that they say. Now Moses tells the Levitical priests, shout out 12 causes for cursing. They're not actually the curses. We'll get to the curses next chapter. These are the reasons why you would be cursed. We actually call this the dodecalogue, because it's 12. And these are what these are is they're a representative sample of why a person would possibly be cursed. It's not like there are no other things that a person could be cursed for, no other reasons for being cursed. These are just examples. This is a, a good sampler, if you will. So looking at this list, it's got by my count, it's got a first and second commandment violation. It's got a fifth commandment violation. It's got three eighth commandment violations. It's got four seventh commandment violations, two sixth commandment violations, and then an overall violation. So it spans the gamut. It includes things like not making a secret idol, either of a pagan god or the real god. Not making light of one's parents. That's actually in the Hebrew what it says. Not making light of your parents. Not moving a landmark. Not taking advantage of people, either the blind or the weak. Uh, not having sexual relations with all kinds of people. Not with your stepmom, your stepsister, your mother-in-law, or any animal of any kind. You think, why would people need to be told that? Uh, it was much more common in the cultures all around them. Not assaulting people, not murdering them in secret, and not taking a bribe that lets people do that. And then the last prohibition, the twelfth one, it's really big. The last prohibition is against not obeying God's law perfectly on every point. It's quite a catch-all. And then one thing to note about these prohibitions, I, I just want to add this as a little note, you kind of look for something, what, is, what links them all together besides there being Ten Commandments type things? Well, they're all talking about things that are done in secret. Secret idols. Moving a landmark. Taking advantage of the blind. Accepting a, a bribe. Hurting someone in secret. They're all things that could easily go undiscovered, you'll notice. So, even as we're just doing a flyby of these different causes for cursing, I think they preach something very 
profound. They preach that, listen, even if men never discover your sinful behavior, God does. And it's still worthy of his curse. So those are the curses, the call and response. And then last, from our 10-foot view, we've just got the amen. So these people, they hear all the causes for cursing coming from the priest, standing in the middle, coming from around God. And then the people, all as one, shouted amen. And we know what this word means. We use it all the time. It means, I agree. It really means more than that. Amen is a word that means, I wholeheartedly agree. I can break it down even more. It means, what you've said is true. What you've said is good. What you've said applies to me. That's what you're saying when you say amen. You're saying it's good, it's true, it's mine. All of it. That's why it's good. Here's a little plug. That's why it's good for us. Let's not lose this, brothers and sisters. When, when one of us calls up here and says amen, I want you all to say amen, right? Punch it. Because that's a real participation in worship. We, we need to keep up our loud amens. They're getting a little quieter, so I just thought I'd say that. Except for Jim Battens. They're all getting quieter. So anyway, so by saying amen, uh, the people are registering their wholehearted agreement with God's law. And maybe more importantly, they're committing themselves to live by it. Saying, I agree, and I'm going to do it. Uh, these, these oaths are what scholars call self-maledictory oaths, which means that when they're saying amen, the people are saying, you know, if I don't follow what this says... I deserve to be cursed. So that's the 10-foot view of this ceremony. We're getting closer. And I hope you see that this has a lot more meaning baked into it than you get just on a casual read-through. But we can do one better. We're itching to get to the one-foot view. Because now we're at the one-foot, right-in-front-of-your-face view. Now we have to consider how all these elements apply in a new covenant context. Uh, So what I want to do with you now is I want to think about how these elements have made it through the test of time to apply to us living in the new covenant today. And I submit to you that they do. So to get at this point, to really get this point, what you need to remember is that the one thing, the one big thing that stands between the old covenant that we're studying and the new covenant that you live in in a daily reality is just this one thing. That thing is course Jesus it's the redemptive work of Jesus Christ so as you read this passage with Jesus in mind I want you to see how Jesus starts to pull all of these disparate elements together and brings them forward to us living today so just by way of background you read here about Moses giving all these directions as Israel's mediator you're reminded Jesus is our better mediator he stands perfectly between us and God But also here you see a land grant. You're seeing a covenant ratification. As you see that, you're reminded, not only does Jesus say, I'm preparing a place for you, he's also the perfect Joshua that brings us into the land when he returns. That's all by way of background. Now getting into the ceremony itself. Now, as you see all this happening in the land of Shechem, it's all happening in the place where God promised the land to Abraham and his offspring. Offspring is singular and plural. We remember that Jesus is Abraham's offspring, and we inherit the land with him and through him. 
looking at the law being etched on standing stones. In the Old Covenant, God etched the law into stones. Ten Commandments stones, standing stones. It's a reminder. It's a witness. It's... But now in the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit has etched his law on our hearts. Jeremiah 31, this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I'll etch it on their hearts. Now, now we carry the law with us, not on a hill that we can maybe look up to and see, but we carry the law with us in our hearts. And better than that, the Spirit's inside making us inclined to love his law. We'll skip the altar for a second. We'll come back to the altar. Uh, let's just talk about the call and response ceremony. In the ceremony, you see a symbol. You see a symbol of God's throne standing between a gulf where on the one side you have hundreds of thousands of blessed and hundreds of thousands of cursed. And maybe it's dawning on you as I say that. This is a picture that should make us tremble. Because whether you recognize it or not, this is a picture of the ultimate fate of all mankind. God's throne is the dividing line, and there is a permanent goal fixed between the two eternal destinies of all mankind. And there's only two. Then comes, for sure, the most terrifying problem that confronts mankind, all mankind. Through his priests, which Jesus now fills that role, God calls out all these causes for cursing. And I'll tell you, God's list, his actual list of things that can cause cursing, is a lot longer than Deuteronomy 27 can contain. But most importantly, look at the last one he gives his people again. He says in verse 26, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Cursed is who? Cursed is anyone who doesn't do this law perfectly. Brothers and sisters, this, this really means what you think it means. You read that and you think, well, that, that can't mean that. It does. This really means that if a person can't do God's law perfectly, they fall under God's curse. And you know that curse is death, and then that curse is the torment of hell forever. And to back this up, James 2 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, is guilty of all of it. Uh, more directly, Paul quotes this verse, this law, in Galatians 3.10, in case you want to see it, Galatians 3.10, to show us that no one gets to heaven by keeping the law. He says, Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, and there's, here's our verse. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So where does that leave us? Where does this whole call and response ceremony leave us? Well, it leaves us with just this. It leaves us with a declaration that every person who has ever lived is a lawbreaker and every person who has ever lived would fall under God's curse. This is some ceremony, isn't it? And all you can do with that declaration is say amen. What else can you say? That's all any enemy of God will be able to say on the day of judgment is just amen. 
God, you're right. Because God's declaration, if God says you're cursed, God who creates reality, God who is fixedly righteous, perfect, God's declaration is undeniably true, it's undeniably just, and the curse is really what every person deserves. Which brings us back to the altar. Remember how I skipped the altar? It is startlingly beautiful to me that God left us one more tiny detail on the mountain of the curse. It's kind of understated, isn't it? And, but that tiny detail, it is everything for us. It's everything. There on that altar, God had his people place all their sins on a substitute and let it be utterly consumed by fire. All to show his people in a shadow and a type that the only way that we can escape from a mountain of curse is by placing all of our sins, all of our curse on Jesus Christ and allowing him to be utterly consumed by the fire of God's wrath. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 3.13. We just read Galatians 3.10. No one can follow the law and escape the curse. But then Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to, the gen- to you, to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In this ceremony, you see clearer than ever that anyone who depends on their own law-keeping is doomed, but anyone who depends on Jesus' sacrifice by faith can make it to the mountain of blessing. And then what does God have his people do after a burnt offering? He says, have some peace offerings. Peace offerings. He tells them, okay, now, have a meal where you celebrate how good it is to be at peace with God. Because you're at peace with God now on the basis of this sacrifice. He tells them, eat all together and rejoice in him and in the deliverance that he'll one day give through his son. Now, I ask you this. Is this not the meal that we have every time we sit at this table? It's not unlike this meal. And is not this meal a meal we're looking forward to when he finally comes and we stand to inherit all things? We come and have the ultimate peace offering. Oh. So let me start to conclude. And I'll conclude and lead right into the table. Because I think that's where this leaves us. So brothers and sisters, this ceremony is just, it's beautiful. This ceremony, that's what it is, it's beautiful. And the closer you get to this, The more you study it, the more you see the genius of God's design. He's a master craftsman. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows what we need. And so now, just to close, I want to apply this to you on every level that I can. I want to press it on you in every way that I can. So for those of you who maybe you're in the place where you tend to doubt God's word, you might get bored by God's word, I, I just want you to be impressed afresh. I want your jaw to drop. I want you to have this moment where you just wonder with awe, what is this book? What am I holding here? 
How precious are his words to you, O Christian. It's flabbergasting. Look at the depth of meaning contained in this chapter. Look at the consistency of the meaning over thousands of years, perfectly fulfilled. Really, This is the word of God. Harbor no doubts, this is the word of God. If that's you, that's your application. For those of you, I think others of you are in a different place. You read this and you saw yourself in these curses. You read this list of curses that God's called out and you, you thought, yeah, I see myself in these curses. Well, I want you to be convicted tonight. If this is you. Convicted by idolatry. It calls out idolatry. You have an idol you need to give up? Convicted by how you make light of your parents. I don't care what age you are. You can do that. Uh, convicted about how you make light of your authorities. Convicted by how you take advantage of people. Maybe you do. Convicted by your sexual immorality. It doesn't have to be these specific ways. It could be another way. Convicted by your bitterness. You might not be striking down people in secret, but you might as well be in your heart. Convicted by the ways that you break his law every day. All the ways that you don't confirm his law by doing it. I would say to you that it really is true that all of these things and many more, infinitely more beside are worthy of God's eternal curse. And you must repent. May this be another little moment where the Spirit uses it to pry more sin out of your hands. For some of you. Maybe for others of you, you need this applied a different way. Maybe... Maybe I have somebody here tonight who thinks, you think, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. Or maybe there are those here that labor under a heavy burden of perfection. Well, this says here, it's not going to happen. You stand here cursed with the rest of us because cursed is anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And if you're guilty in one point, you've become guilty of it all. James says, and so I'll say to you, if you're one of these people, you say, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. Ah, if you want peace with God, if you want blessings with God forevermore, you want to make it on that mount of blessing, well, then you have to look to the mountain of the curse. You have to look to the cross where Jesus willingly offered himself as a whole burnt offering in your place. Then and only then can you come to the mountain of blessing through faith in him. Finally, maybe one more application I'll leave you with. Finally, if, if you have come to faith in him, say, amen, brother, I, I'm there. I'm coming just through faith. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. If you're coming by faith in him, if you're hearing all this and your heart is soaring, you're saying, how wonderful this is. This is salvation writ large for all God's people for all of time. If that's you, well then, well, then your invitation is, okay, here's your application. Come to the table. Come to the table. This table is a God-ordained reminder that he gave you Jesus as a whole burnt offering. Jesus offered under the intense, fiery hatred of God for you. Jesus was cursed on the mountain of curse so that you could be placed on the mountain of blessing. That's what this preaches. His body broken, his blood poured for you. And now, that being the case, Jesus said, it is finished. We don't do this sacrifice again. It's finished. This is an emblem of the sacrifice. But now this table for you, if you're a Christian, 
It is so much like the peace offerings that we've talked about. Now, this table is a declaration that in Christ, you have perfect peace and fellowship with God forever. You're invited, as a Christian, to come and eat with the Lord. He'll be with you here by His Spirit. And you're invited to rejoice in your God forevermore, together, like we will do forever. So those things being said, I will only give this caution. If you're not a Christian yet, if you're not believing in Jesus, not repenting of your sin, if you're not, then this table isn't for you yet. Because you're still under the curse. You're still on the Mount of Curse. But what I'll say to you is if you're not a Christian yet, you could be on the Mount of Blessing. You just need Jesus. Ask us about him. Uh, it would be our life's delight to tell you about him and how you can make it, how you can offer up those offerings in Christ uh, and join him at his table on the Mount of Blessing. All those things being said, let's just take a moment uh, to pray and get ourselves ready to meet the Lord all together as a family at his table. Just a moment of silent prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach your table together, we, we see so many reasons for why we should be cursed. But at the same time, we cling to the one by faith who was cursed in our place, who became a curse for us. And so we come to this table rejoicing in you, our great God, our Father our, and Son and Holy Spirit. We come saying, please rejoice over us, sing over us, like Zephaniah says, O Lord, meet us here at this table and feed our faith so that we might live in a way more worthy of the great God who saved us. Pray all these things together as your family, whom you've made your family by adoption in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.